and open up in your copy of the scriptures to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to continue on, starting in verse 22, and finish up this chapter today. Uh, Children, wait, I should pray first. Read scripture, okay, I always get this wrong, I'm sorry. Uh, Read scripture, and then there's a slide, convenient. If I get a little twitchy up here, it's not because I'm suddenly like filled with the Spirit in a unique way, it's because I am covered in bug bites. (laughs) So, that's my life right now. Uh, back to what's, mat- what's mattering here. John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. Follow along as I read. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, wit- bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's word. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we ask in this moment that you would show us what needs to be seen in this passage. Namely, that you would show us the greatness of Jesus. That his power, his authority, his ministry would be so enlarged in our brain that it would produce a humility before you. We pray that you would do this work by the power of your Spirit and that even those who who are here who have yet to come to terms with who Jesus is would see for the first time the greatness of Jesus and be saved. We pray for all of those in this room who have been growing in their knowledge of Christ for years, that you would do a new, fresh work today to open our eyes to see more of who Jesus is. We pray this in your name. Amen. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church, and you can be seated.
Well, we have in front of us this morning a often overlooked passage. I don't know if you feel that way. I certainly did when I began reading it. We just finished the most intensely looked at passage in all of Scripture with John 3.16 in that context. And now we come to this section that uh, may be tempting to just skip over to the next juicy section that we like to read, which is a woman in the conversation with the Samaritan woman next. But what we have here in these verses is really a great summary of what we've seen already in chapter 3, um, but also drives us to see something fresh, something new. Um, this week we see in John the Baptist's example uh, a second birthmark, to use uh, Will's language from last week as he spoke about faith as the birthmark of the new birth, of being a genuine born-again Christian. Uh, Here today, we see in John's example, I think a second birthmark, um, humility. Humility. John displays for us a beautiful picture of humility. Now, humility is a tricky subject. I want to set two extremes here for us. The world, by that I mean secular culture, speaks of humility as increasingly a, a hindrance to happiness. You'll, you'll see in popular culture a push to um, self-affirmation, a push to attaining greatness. Uh, I've been annoyed lately at just how obsessed the sports world is with the discussions of the greatest. Who's the greatest? Um, who cares? We're enjoying a sport, you know? Like, good players are good players, but our world is obsessed with this. And, and the problem is, is that we don't just have this competitive drive, which maybe is innate to who we are as creatures, but we think that happiness is attached to it. That somehow if we attain a higher, a higher standing than that other person, or we get to the standing of greatness, that that's where the happiness is going to be found. Or uh, maybe we think that if we can just have a greater self-esteem, a greater sense of our own greatness, then we would find happiness, that somehow that would ward off anxiety and depression and all these different things. And um, the world wants to say humility actually is a hindrance to happiness, which, as a side, it doesn't even work in their own worldview. Who wants to be friends with somebody who isn't humble? We all love being around people who think of others, who see themselves as uh, not the greatest. But the world presents it that way, that humility is a hindrance to happiness. But then the the second extreme, maybe, is a response to that in the church. And I know... Many of you have seen this response and have struggled with it. I know I have. And that is, we, we see humility as a good thing, as it should be, uh, but we define it weirdly. We have this weird definition of humility that says that humility is actually a self-loathing, a deprecation of self, a movement of self downward. And, uh, and so we have this strange thing that happens where actually the most miserable among us are seen as the humblest. <laughs> if somebody's really like you ask them how are they doing and they're constantly saying well you know 
I'm a great sinner, and I'm, I'm terrible, and this is bad, and all this. We think, wow, that person's really humble because they have a bad view of themselves. And while I can see how we would fall into that, I think John here presents a much more stable, helpful definition, or at least example, of humility, this mark of new birth. And that, that definition of humility, I think, is simply put in saying humility, true humility, is the enjoyment of the greatness of Jesus. True humility is having a huge view of our Savior. True humility recognizes that there's somebody greater in our presence at all times. That the top of the ladder, the top of the food chain, is already taken. So why scramble and fight for the top? He already has it. Joy and happiness come in enjoying his greatness. That's the pattern we see here in John's example. And so our text today breaks down in really two ways. There's a kind of a narrative movement, and then there's a theological statement aspect to this. Um, in the first section, verses 22 through 30, we see John's example of humility. We see him recognizing his place before Jesus or in, in relationship to Jesus. The second section here, in verses 31 to 36, we see the source of John's humility. And, and we could argue as to how these two sections relate, because in the ESV, at least, the quotation marks end. Um, but I think it helps to see this as a continuation of John's statement. There's no reason to see it not that way. Um, and I think it grounds for us why John sees himself the way he sees himself. And so this second section gives us the source of John's humility, and that is a view of Jesus' greatness. And we're going to see four visions or four aspects of Jesus' greatness in that section. And so here's, here's my hope this morning. Feel what John feels because you see what John sees. Feel the way John feels about himself and his position and his role because you see, like with John, the greatness of Jesus. That's our desire this morning. Humility is not, you know, something to be rejected, like the world says. In fact, it's something to be longed for. Matthew uh, 6, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a statement of humility before God neediness before God. For theirs is the kingdom. We talked about how chapter 3 is really asking, uh, behind the scenes, it's asking the question of how does one enter this kingdom? How does one come to enjoy this life, this eternal life that Jesus offers? We talked about how new birth is essential, that this, this sovereign work of the Spirit needs to happen to put in us a new heart, to give us new desires and new thoughts and new uh, reception of who Jesus is. Jesus stands at the center of what it means to be born again. Who are we saying he is? We talked about how the, the mark of this new life is a look to Jesus in tr trust and belief and obedience, this faith towards Jesus. That's the, the mark of this. And here we have this second mark, humility. It's not something to be rejected. It's something to be longed for because it's central to what it means to be a member of the kingdom. But it's not this weird, self-deprecating thing. It's... It's about Jesus and how we see him. 
So let's look through these two sections here and feel first what John feels, desire that, long for this humility, and then spend the the rest of the time looking at the great one together and having our humility cultivated as we see him. So starting in verse 22. This little narrative we have here, uh, we've got a, a statement of the setting, kind of a setting the context here. Then we've got a problem that develops, and then we have John's response to that problem. So let's look first at the setting. There's a few contextual features here which really don't uh, add a, a huge amount to the way we walk through this here. What we need to see here is, is that Jesus is stated as baptizing, and John stated as baptizing. Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside and remained there with them, and and Jesus was baptizing. Now, we know from chapter 4 that Jesus wasn't literally the one baptizing. It was his disciples baptizing, but it was a baptism of Jesus that was taking place. John was also baptizing. The little parenthetical statement there for John had not yet been put in prison. You go, why is that added there? The best answer I saw was that it's, it's showing how early this is giving a statement of time. Like, this is early on in Jesus' ministry here. Um, John has not yet been put in prison. This is fairly early in Jesus' ministry. And we see both here in the wilderness baptizing. Now, we already established John's ministry. Right? He came as the one bearing witness, the one who was bapt- giving a baptism in, of repentance. But here we see Jesus baptizing. And that leads into tension that develops. Look at verses 25 through 26. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now that seems like a natural discussion to have with a Jew when somebody is representing the baptism of John. Baptism symbolizes that purification and so a Jew would look on it and have questions. But that's not the big thing here. The big thing is what comes from this discussion they have. Now, we don't know exactly what happened in this discussion, but somehow this discussion moved from a discussion of Jewish purification to uh, wondering what's going on with Jesus and his baptism. And I think the data that's given to us here helps us understand the movement here. Somehow in this discussion, John's disciples begin to feel a sense of jealousy sense of competition. Look at what they say. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now there's several things here that draw out the mood of this statement, okay? Um, First, look at the statement rabbi. Now that, that would be culturally pretty normal, John is offering teaching. He would have been respected in that way. But in the context of this gospel, only one other person has been called rabbi exclusively. And that is Jesus. Jesus has been established throughout the gospel of John as the teacher, the one, the rabbi. And John's disciples here are saying, rabbi, which should raise the alarm in our brain. We've got a little competition of titles going on here. So that's, that's number one. That's the first thing that draws out the mood of this. These disciples are setting in subtly Jesus up in contrast with John. Second, look at their exaggeration. 
He, Jesus, is baptizing, and all are going to him. Well, clearly not all are going to him, because some are still going to you and being baptized by John. So you can see there's this competitive spirit developing. There's a tension developing in these disciples of John, and and it's creating this little war. The third thing we see here that establishes this as what's going on is John's response. John sees this as a, a, an implicit question of John's relationship with Jesus. And the implicit question is, who is meant to be greater? Jesus or John? Who should the people be going to? Who deserves all of the attention? So there's this problem that's established. And I, I don't need to belabor the point that this is a battle in all of our lives, is it not? Who deserves the attention? The Maine Baptist Church or Jesus? You or Jesus? Your pastors or Jesus? This competition develops very easily in our hearts. And John gives a very definitive response. So let's move on to John's confession. Verses 27 through 30. John makes a statement here that is beautiful. There is no competition in his mind. There is no battle over who is greatest. There is only a clear understanding of his place before the Messiah. So let's look at it, starting in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's confession here about his role can kind of be broken down into four movements, four, four bits of confession. Let's look at the first one. John confesses that his place is purely by God's grace. His place is purely by God's grace. Verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is from heaven. That, that's a theme that we've already established, right? John chapter 1 talks about how everything is coming down from above. Everything that is life is coming down from above. And so this statement by John bears that out. You can't receive even one thing unless it is given you from heaven. John recognizes that his place in this grand story of redemption is simply a gift of grace. God has given him a role to play, and it's a gracious role that he does not deserve. It is a gift to him. Second bit of statement here. John sees his role as secondary. Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John has no discussion in his mind as to who is who in this equation. John knows his role. He is the one who has been sent before, bearing witness, bearing witness to one greater. He is not the Christ. He has been sent to bear witness. And then he gives this third, this third expression of his role. In this beautiful picture in verse 29, his role 
is a joyful one. It's a joyful one. He, he gets to be a front row observer of the great one coming. And he uses this beautiful picture, this picture of a bride and, his, and the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom. I got to kind of experience this a few weeks ago at my brother's wedding. Uh, that wedding was not about me, but me as the officiant, I got to sit there front row seat and watch the joy happen. Watch what needed to happen in that moment happen, which was my brother get his bride. It's a beautiful thing to watch. John sees himself in this beautiful position of front row observer to this great event. The bridegroom getting his bride. Now, that's a fun picture, but there's more going on here than meets the eye. This is an Old Testament picture. Many of you understand that. Let's, let's go ahead and turn back to Hosea chapter 2. In, in Hosea 2, Hosea really is this giant picture of marriage and adultery used by God to um, condemn, to essentially point out his people's failure. But when God starts to speak of this good work he's going to do in his people in the future, this new covenant work, he uses bride and bridegroom imagery, starting in verse 14 of chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, who's her? His people, Israel. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And, and there I will give her vineyards. And make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. In other words, you'll have a renewed, pure relationship with me, rather than this idolatry that you're practicing. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war of the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. The, the promise of the new covenant, we talked about earlier a few weeks ago, the promise of the new covenant in the new birth. But here we've got the promise of the new covenant in this restoration of this bride and bridegroom relationship. So when John uses this picture of his joy in seeing the bridegroom receiving his bride, that's not just a happenstance picture. This is the new covenant unfolding. The Messiah is drawing to himself his people. He's giving them new life, and he's bringing them in covenant with him. John sees this great new covenant work happening, and he rejoices at watching it. Let's look at this fourth description of his role that flows from this. He says, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. This perspective John has 
on this new covenant reality being acted out by the Messiah puts him not in a place of, oh, I wish I had a greater role here, or oh, I wish I had an ongoing role here, but simply in this place of, my job is finishing, and I'm happy to see it so. Because his whole job was to point people to the one, to say, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Follow him. Look to him. He's the Messiah. He's the bridegroom. He's the son sent from God for the eternal life that you need. And my role is passing. It's passing. It had a moment. It was a gift of grace. It was always secondary. It was a joyful moment, but it's passing. So we see here a beautiful description of humility, don't we? John isn't inherently self-deprecating, although he does say he's okay with the fact that his role is decreasing. But he's not looking at himself like, I'm the scum of the earth. I've got nothing, no, no part in this. I, am, I have nothing to do here. He's saying, I had a place in this great plan of God. And it was a joy to fulfill it. And I'm joyful to see it being fulfilled. That's humility. That's humility. And that's a humility that we can practice. We have a part in this great redemptive work that God is doing. We have a a part to play, a role to fulfill in making disciples and speaking of Christ's greatness and raising our kids and talking to our neighbors and doing all these things that God has given to us for his name's sake. And, and humility is not a, ah, I have nothing to do. I, I'm not worthy to do anything. I have no part in this. I have no skills. Humility is a, a submission to God's plan for us and a rejoicing in the fact that our role makes much of him. That's humility. That's what we want. That's, that's the mark of new birth that we want. We want to see our place in God's great design and fulfill it happily and see Jesus be made much of. How, then, do we get our selfish, prideful hearts to grow in this way? How do we become like John? How do we have this sort of gracious, secondary, joyful, passing view of our place in God's kingdom? How can we be humble? And that's what we need to look to here in the remainder of our passage. By seeing what John sees. By seeing what he sees. And he, either, well, I guess it's either John... (laughs) Either John the Evangelist or John the Baptist continues on to describe the greatness of Jesus. I am prone to see this as John the Baptist's words. But either way, we have this beautiful description here of Jesus' greatness. And it helps us bring around all these different themes we've been thinking about in chapter 3, but it also just helps us establish the source of our humility. How do we grow to be humble like this? We see Jesus rightly. So let's look at four visions of the greatness of our Savior. Four visions of the greatness of Jesus that produce this posture in us of humility. I'm going to just settle on each one of these and think through them with you because they're beautiful. Let's look firstly at the greatness of Jesus' origin. 
Jesus has a great origin. He comes from above. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now, this statement, I think it's really powerful because John is drawing a contrast between John the Baptist, I think, contextually here, and Jesus' role. But if if you remember, in chapter 1, John's role was actually from heaven. He was sent by God to, to carry out his purposes. And yet John himself here sees Jesus in a whole nother class. So Jesus says John is the greatest, right? John is the greatest. He has the most profound role to play in that he gets to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And yet here the competition ends. There is none. Because one is truly from heaven and one is from earth. He who belongs to earth speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now this may seem like a no-brainer to many of you. We have, many of us, been confessing the from-godness of Jesus our whole lives. But what this establishes is that Jesus' greatness isn't first and foremost about what he says, his teaching. It isn't even about what he does, his great acts of redemption. Jesus' greatness predates all of those. Jesus' greatness comes from who he is in and himself. And that's what's established in John chapter 1. This contrast between these two great figures is established right away in the beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No contest. No other person fits that category. And then in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The greatness of Jesus comes from his origin, first and foremost. Not just simply a person sent from God like John, but God himself in the person of the Son. His, his origin as the divine one come from heaven sets him apart. He is God in the flesh. So the greatness of his origin, that's our first vision that John gives us, that he is above all because of where he comes from. He is different from all others. His greatness is first and foremost of his origin. Look secondly here at this second vision. John gives us a view of Jesus' greatness that's anchored in his ministry. So look at the the greatness of Jesus' ministry in verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, admittedly, this, is, this statement here takes some chewing. There's a logic here that I think is really profound and helpful for us, but it takes a few uh, moments to get it in our heads. Okay, so let's think about this logic. Think carefully through what he's saying here. He's saying Jesus' ministry, this great ministry that he has that sets him apart, is to bear witness of what he's seen and heard. 
He has seen and heard from the Father himself what he needs to communicate. His, the, the, the words he has are from God himself. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So there's something that happens here when, when a person receives Jesus' words as true. He's saying something about what God is like. Because these two people are so intricately woven together, the Father and the Son, right? God and, and Jesus sent, that to receive one word from Jesus is to say something about the truthfulness of God. Now that, that's amazing, because that's speaking of Jesus' words as divine themselves. They're God's very words. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. But there's this one more movement. Uh, and this, is, this next verse is where the logic is really interesting. For he whom, he, has, he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Okay, we established that. For he gives the Spirit without measure. Okay, so here's the logic, I think, as I'm seeing it. Jesus, his words are established as true, and when we receive them as true, we say something about God's truthfulness, but what's, what establishes Jesus' words as true? How do we know what he's saying is true? The logic here in John points us to what happens through Jesus' words. He gives the Spirit without measure. Now that might seem like a strange jump. The words of John, or the words of Jesus are true and therefore speak to God's truthfulness because he gives the spirit without measure. But I think it all comes together when we're thinking about this new covenant reality. The Messiah that was prophesied was going to be the servant who speaks the word of God. Who speaks God's very word. And through him would come this new covenant reality. So again, this, I think, is hinting at this new covenant thing here. He gives the Spirit without measure is speaking to Ezekiel 36 again and other new covenant texts in the Old Testament that, that God would put his own Spirit in his people, that this Spirit would be divvied out to God's people, that he'd be given freely to his people and that that would mark them, that would set them apart. And, and the connection here is that the words of Jesus as the Messiah lead to this mark of the Messiah's ministry, the Spirit being given out, which, of course, we've been establishing since the beginning of chapter 3, that you receive the words of Christ and that, that produces life, that you can't even do that without the Spirit within you giving you eyes to see, that the Word and the life are intertwined, that the Word and the gift of the Spirit are together. John is saying that here, that, that when we receive Jesus' words, we say something about God being true, but we receive them because of the effect. So how do we know Jesus is true? One of the ways Scripture gives us to know Jesus is true is to say, is the Spirit at work? Is the Spirit at work? Is, has he been given without measure? So I, I think that's helpful. When you're doubting, you know, you're reading scripture and you say, man, I'm struggling to believe this or that. I, I feel doubt within me rising up. Where do you go for confidence? 
is there new life in you? Has God's, Jesus' word from God produced life from God? If so, you can trust the word. It's produced it. It's done what it was created to do. It's given life. And John is pointing out this great ministry of Jesus to say, he is greater because his word, which is great, produces the life that is great. It's this new covenant messianic ministry that he's doing that is so great. Something John's ministry doesn't even touch. John's ministry doesn't deliver the Spirit. John's ministry points to the one who delivers the Spirit, as we saw in chapter 1. The one who the Spirit comes to dwell on at the baptism is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. This is the uniqueness of Jesus' ministry, that his words lead to life. Let's look thirdly here at the greatness of of Jesus' authority. John leads us to this third vision of the greatness of Jesus. His authority. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son and has given him all things into his hand. Now, if you, you, if you know the Gospel of John, this should lead you to John 17 in your thoughts, because this is exactly what Jesus prays back to the Father. That the Father's love leads to the gift of his people being given to him. But here we see the authority of Jesus, the ownership of Jesus. The Father's love leads to Jesus' greatness. It's this unique relationship with the Father that Jesus has that nobody else can touch. Nobody else knows this intimacy between the Father and the Son and the Godhead. And it's this uniqueness of relationship that allows Jesus to be in a greatness category unto himself. He owns all because the one who owns all has given all things into his hand. So this this Jesus who we're believing who we're trusting in, who we're humbling ourselves before, isn't just another teacher. He's not just another spiritual leader. He's not, he's not a guru. He is the king of the universe. Everything belongs to him. And particularly, his people belong to him. And so we get brought into this authority, this ownership of all things in a unique way and drawn into the love that the Father has with his Son. But I won't preach John 17 right now. Go there later. Read that. That's beautiful. <laughs> uh, so we have the greatness of his authority, though. This unique relationship with the Father leads to a unique uh, authority between, uh, over, over all others. So we have the greatness of his origin. Jesus is unique because of where he's from and who he is. We have the greatness of his ministry. He's unique because of where his words come from and what they do. He's great because of his authority, because of this unique relationship he has and, and the ownership of all things that come from it. And fourthly here, we have the greatness of his effect. The greatness of his effect. I wrestled with this word in verse 36, his effect. Because there's the reality of who Jesus is and his greatness becomes the dividing line in human history. The dividing line. There is no fact in human history that has as much power as what we read in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Who 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's a dividing line established because of Jesus and his greatness. His great ministry, his great relationship with the Father leads to this great, unmatched, unique effect that he has on you and me. And so the greatest decision before us as human beings is what do we do with Jesus? He is the dividing line of human history. But let's point out some particulars here. I mean, this is, this is a packed statement here. So there's a few nuances here that need to be drawn out. First nuance that I want to draw out. Look at the parallel statement between believe and obey. I think this is powerful. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Parallel statement. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. That's interesting. Jesus connect, or John is connecting here belief and obedience. Belief and obedience. What he doesn't mean to say, because we know this from the rest of the scripture, is that rote obedience to God's commands is the method of being saved. We know that. We will not be justified by our works. What he is saying here is that there's a direct connection. What we do with Jesus is or is not belief. Belief in Jesus leads to submission to Jesus. It is, they are, they are together. That's why we say Lord and Savior. We believe in his mission, and in that we believe in his supremacy, his authority over us, his worthiness to be obeyed. I, I think that's just a beautiful thing to notice here, that there's a textual place to say faith without works is dead. <laughs> Obedience and belief go together. Another thing to notice, look at the word remains. The word remains there at the very end. What is the nature of the position of those who do not obey, therefore believe in Christ? The wrath of God remains on him. Sobering. There are two positions in life. That's it. There are those who believe in Christ and are currently experiencing eternal life. This union with the Father, this the Word of God at work within us, cultivating this new life. There are those who believe and have eternal life. And there are those who currently do not believe and the wrath of God remains on them. It's a present reality. Not just a future reality, it is certainly that. God's wrath will be expressed in concrete ways. But remains. So, you who have no care for who Jesus is, who are rejecting him, know that that applies. That the wrath of God sits upon you. It remains with you. It's a fearful place to be. But the offer of the gospel is that through receiving Christ, through this belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior, as the one who redeems us and the one who rules us, who is to be obeyed, we have life offered to us. The gospel is present in verse 36 in a very beautiful way. If you believe in Christ, you have life. Summarizing 
chapter 3. That new life in Christ, this new covenant life comes down to what are you doing with Jesus? And then it presents this sad reality. That if you reject him, as the world does, the wrath of God remains on you. The greatness of Jesus is in his effect. That he stands at the center of human history and changes everything. You are either with Jesus and therefore experiencing life, or you are against Jesus and therefore under the wrath of God. He divides all of human history. He has a unique origin that makes him great. He has a unique ministry that makes him great. He has a unique authority and ownership of all things that make him great, and he has an effect that makes him great. The mark of the new covenant life, this, this new life in Christ, this born-again reality that we've been studying. How do we get into the kingdom? We must be born again. And that shows up in faith towards Christ. And here we see humility towards Christ. We can't know him, really, without this humility growing in us. Let's apply that two different ways. Pride. Explicit pride. The sort of pride that says, I am going to be great. I am going to be awesome. I am going to be the best. Demonstrates a lack of this life. This vision of who Christ is. And so if you are in Christ, say no to that old man. Humble yourself before him and his greatness and enjoy it like John does. If you are not in Christ, recognize that your greatness is an illusion. There's only one great one. There's only one who stands at the center of human history, and it's Jesus. But let's go the opposite direction, too, on that other side that we talked about of humility and say, what about that self-loathing, that self-deprecation thing? What do we do with that? A Christian should not be self-loathing. The Christian should be this joyful recipient of promises and identity that we have no way to understand. I mean, it's way beyond us that we would be called children of God, that we would be brought into this new covenant reality and have this identity before God that we are His. We belong to Him. We have His love set upon us. There should be this joy as John experiences before the greatness of Jesus. His greatness means our happiness. That's the Christian paradigm that we get to live with, is that we as Christians have happiness in our humility. So are you, are you in this place of self-loathing and self-demeaning and woe is me and I'm terrible? I, I want to challenge you to think that you don't understand the greatness of Jesus. You don't understand the greatness of Jesus because if you did, you'd be looking at him and receiving from him your identity. You're looking at yourself and receiving your identity from yourself. It's really just pride. Real Christian humility. The mark of our new life is that we look to the greatness of another and find our stability in that. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we want to be humble, not just because it's convenient or wise, but because it's what we were created to be, dependent creatures, in a relationship that we could never dream of with the creator of the universe through Christ. 
We pray that we would be a people here, even at Emmanuel Baptist Church, that have this humility growing in us, this joyful, happy obsession with your greatness. That we would see you each day and have that change the way we see ourselves and the way we see our world. That we would submit to you and receive from you the promises that give us identity and hope and meaning and purpose. We thank you for this example in John and we pray that you would work by your spirit to build us into these sorts of people. We pray this in your name. Amen.